This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You know, there was this argument that Oscar Wilde made a long time ago that the most dangerous slave owners were the ones who tried to be nice to their slaves, while, of course, completely upholding, benefiting from, sustaining, and not challenging the system of slavery. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to a podcast that searches for the ideas, policies and strategies that can beat authoritarian populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. I know, I know, I know, I promised not to plug any more things at the beginning of this podcast and I promise you from now on I'll be done plugging the book the people versus democracy, and I'll be done plugging everything else. But there is one very exciting announcement that I've got to make today. And that's that we will have our first inaugural live Good Fight podcast. We will have it on Wednesday, April 4th, from 5 to 7 p.m. in Washington, D.C., Sorry, folks who are in other cities, if you want us to come to your city, send us suggestions for great event spaces if you have connections with any. But this is on April the 4th from 5 to 7 p.m. at New America in Washington, D.C. And it'll be with great guests Cecilia Munoz and Vladimir Karamurzov. Please come and join us and we can all go for a drink close to this studio afterwards. It would be great to meet even more of you. I've met a bunch of you on the road for the past weeks and hopefully I'll meet even more of you in DC very soon. But now I'm really pleased to announce another new development which is that we're going to have two episodes split among the same guest. And it's really his own fault because he came into the studio on a very snowy day that the blizzard was happening in New York and just had too many interesting things for one episode to say. I didn't want to subject you all to two hours in one go. So we've split the really great wide-ranging conversation that I've had with Anand Giridharadas into two episodes. In the first one today, we're talking about his excellent new book and, and the wider sort of things he's been writing about called Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World, which is a really interesting look in some of the ways in which affluent people in our society have a genuine self-conception of trying to do good for the world, but actually end up harming it in important ways. And I've got to tell you, I'm even more excited for the release of the second half of our conversation two weeks from now, which is about America's couples therapy, which is to say, how do the members of the two great American tribes we now have, according to Anand, members of woke America and members of great America, learn to speak to each other productively and actually fight to produce and to create a common country in which we all might be happy 
to live with each other. So wait for that two weeks from now. Um, Anand is um, a, a former uh, India correspondent for the New York Times, a former international columnist for the New York Times, who is now a writer and a very frequent NBC contributor. Welcome, Anand. Thank you so much for coming to the studio on this snowy New York day. I would trudge through the snow for no one else, Yasha. I very much appreciate that. Listen, so you've written a book, which, full disclosure, I haven't read because you just handed over the galleys to me. It's out in a, in a bunch of months. That tries to look a little bit at the delusion that some you know, rich and very powerful people in our society have of really trying to improve the world and pat themselves on the back for all of the amazing things they're doing. They spend, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars to uh, attend TED conferences. They, they donate quite a bit of money. And uh, you're a little skeptical of what they actually achieve, whether they might not make things worse. In the news this, this past week of Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, that's obviously especially topical right now. Let's start with what a sympathetic portrayal of this would be. How do you think that the people who have a lot of money and influence in our society actually see themselves sort of in their own terms? It's a great question. I first alighted on this topic because I was invited to join their ranks in a strange and beautiful little you, fellowship. You said no to a billion dollars? That was unfortunately not the terms of the offer. Oh, I'm sorry uh, to hear that. But, but I did get a phone call in 2011 from the Aspen Institute, inviting me to become a fellow of the Aspen Institute. And I didn't know too much about it, but it was a prestigious organization, had a lot of powerful people involved with it, was was deeply involved in many civic and other questions of American and global life. And it also had the name Aspen in it, which, you know, is a place that one doesn't turn down visits to. And so I joined this fellowship, and the fellowship was mostly business people. And they threw in, in each class of kind of 20 fellows, a couple of, you know, people to maybe spice it up and bring down the financial average. And I was one of those people. Some artists, you know, a thinker here and there, a TV person, that kind of thing. And I loved it. It was a great fellowship. We read Plato and Gandhi and a little bit of Jack Welch and discussed and debated and shared about our lives. And it was a really incredible experience. And the purpose of the fellowship... Full disclosure, and we did not talk about this before the podcast, they invited me to teach one of those mini retreats at the Aspen Society of Fellows a few weeks ago. And I went and taught things about the crisis of democracy, actually talking to people across the political divide in a way that I rarely get to go. And it was a great experience, but I suspect that I may also share some of the things that you're about to say. And to be honest, you're looking a little wealthier than when I even saw you a few weeks ago. So the effect of Aspen take hold very quickly. Well, perhaps I negotiated that billion dollars better than you <laughs> right, did, Anne. Exactly. So I was part of this thing, and, and the goal of the fellowship was to get these mostly these business people to try to think about not just making money, but making the world a better place. Moving from success to significance was one of the bywords. And... That's a noble thing. And what I started to watch as the years went on, and I enjoyed the fellowship of these people, I occasionally started to fly in some of their private planes. I hung out in some of their homes overlooking the Roaring Fork Valley in Aspen and their antler-decorated mansions. I once saw Tom Friedman swimming in his mother-in-law's pool. It was an incredible experience. Specifically seeing Tom Friedman in his Yeah, in Aspen. Hospital. You know, his Aspen, big, big <laughs> Aspen family. While Jane Harmon, who I think had just stepped down as the Intelligence Committee chair in the House, was standing over the pool talking to Tom Friedman. I mean, it's just an amazing thing to be in Aspen. And what I started to realize was that all these rich and powerful people coming together, talking about making the world a better place, clashed with the reality of what was happening to the world in that very moment. 
In fact, in that very moment, America was becoming as unequal as it had been in 100 years. The rich and powerful actually seemed to be the only people reaping the benefits of change. And in fact, we seem to be verging on a society in which almost the entire gains from innovation and progress were siphoned up, totally monopolized by the top 50% of us, and mostly monopolized by the top 10, 1, 0.1, 0.001% of us, those of us, frankly, mostly gathering in Aspen. And so I just started to be curious about what actually is going on when the rich and powerful claim to be changing the world. So, so I want to understand, first of all, more about what the claim is, right? When you spoke to those affluent businessmen at, at the Aspen Institute who presumably could, you know, choose to spend their time, I don't know, having affairs with porn stars like some rich people have in the past, apparently. Wow. And instead, they come together, you know, around a table to discuss Plato and, and Aristotle and so on. I mean, how do they conceive of their role in this system? And how do you think that self-conception is not exactly accurate? I think the and this goes back to your, your good question that I a little bit ignored, which is, I think in their own self-conception, every era has a different set of tools that are effective at moving needles in the world. And I think they would argue that in other times, government or civil society or a king or an army were the best vessels for human advancement. But that in our era, it just so happens that the best way to move any needle of progress is business. And some of them may celebrate that and think that that's right. Others of them may just be saying that as a kind of descriptive observation of the world as they see it. You hear this phrase often, business is how you change the world now. And so these people like facts like, you know, it's quite difficult for governments in Africa to get condoms to everybody who needs a condom to fight the AIDS epidemic. But Coca-Cola somehow manages to be in every little village in Africa. So therefore, we need to solve public problems through Coca-Cola or like Coca-Cola or Coke with the help condoms. of... Right. You, can, you could package them. That would be interesting. And at the heart of that idea, I think, you know, Paulo Freire has this great phrase of how this kind of thing sometimes brings together the naive and the shrewd. I think there are just simply cunning, shrewd people who are deep soaked in kind of neoliberal market fundamentalism, who fully understand that they are going to reap the benefits of a world in which they argue that there's no place for government and only rich people can make mm. change. I think when Goldman Sachs creates CSR, uh, you know, corporate social responsibility programs and empowers 10,000 women, my understanding is that people are fully aware of what they're doing and what they're part of. But I do think, and frankly, many of the people I met in Aspen, we're actually more on the other end of the spectrum where I think it's closer to the naive than the shrewd. I think they genuinely do believe that markets are the best way to make change. And I think the kernel of truth in that is that markets have done a great job in certain cases in the last many years of lifting people out of poverty. But if you actually look more closely, it's basically India and China that have you know, lifted most of those people out of poverty. And The story that markets came there is an incomplete story. In India also made enormous strides to abolish and defeat and overcorrect for the caste system in the same period that markets were coming in. So it's hard to isolate that variable. And China is a communist, capitalist, totalitarian, free market society that no one entirely understands what kind of system that is. So it's hard to use that as an example of open capitalism. So what he's saying is there's two elements of this, right? I mean, the first element is, well... 
Should we have high taxation? Should we have a lot of regulation? Should we really constrain what business gets to do? And presumably a lot of people in the circles you're talking about would say, no, 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 because actually business can deliver all of that progress. So that's one kind of critique. What about the more sort of charitable side of that, which I understand you also critique in the book, right? So what about the Aspen Institute, the, the TED conference, and all of those kinds of things, which are sort of on the other ledger, right? So you could say, as some effective altruists argue, right? So effective altruists are people who are saying, let's really think in a very hard-nosed utilitarian way about how we can make the most good. And some of them end up advocating for people to go and make as much money as you can on Wall Street, because somebody's going to do it anyway, but then commit to giving a bunch of that money away, right? That's one extreme form of it. There's more informal forms of it, like the Milken Conference and the Aspen Institute and the TAT Conference and all of those kinds of things, which bring together people, you know, in part because they enjoy it, in part because they like being around smart people and, you know, all their other friends are going there, so it's nice to see and be seen, but also because they think that somehow this is the place where the ideas are going to be hatched, that are going to improve the world. And I agree with you. In my experience, if the choices are they shrewd or naive, I think it is more on the naive side. I think they have, a, to put it nicely, I think they have a genuine belief that what they do matters and that it's good. And by the way, I think that's true of virtually everybody in the world. There's very few people I in agree. this world and I, who say, I, wouldn't have... I am bad and I'm doing something bad. I think nearly everybody is a hero in their own story. So on the charitable side, on the side of coming together to discuss Plato, coming together to discuss the great ideas that will change the world, the TED conference or even just donating a bunch of your money to whatever charities, where does the critique apply on that end? That's a great question. So when you think about the idea that people are, and the effective altruism movement is only a more extreme expression of something that is actually widely accepted in our culture, and in some ways Andrew Carnegie laid out nearly 130, 140 years ago, which is the idea of extreme taking followed by extreme giving. So the idea is that you can work at a hedge fund, and then help kids in an orphanage in Africa. The idea is you can help kind of fatten kids and foreshorten their lives by selling them fatty, uh, sugary soft drinks and then donate to a charter school. Don't, don't solve that Coke I'm drinking right, right. now. <laughs> At least it's diet. I'm still concerned for you, though. And then donate to a school in Harlem where you're perhaps helping to educate the same kids whose lives you are shortening through the soft drinks you are pushing on them. This kind of charitable giving is almost unquestioned in our time. Almost everybody thinks, well, at least they're doing some good. And there are a few problems with it that I want to raise. One is the issue of sin washing. It's very clear that you don't get to a, levels of inequality and anger like this without a, quite a bit of sin being committed. So the washing of sin through charitable acts obscures what's going on. And because you often actually have a media that is harried and busy and not able to fully track everything down, a story about Goldman Sachs helping 10,000 women can, in terms of media mentions and attention, end up overwhelming a story of however many more women lost their homes because of what Goldman Sachs did in the financial crisis and paid a five or six hundred million dollar fine for. There's also the issue of power consolidation. In a democratic society, we all believe in one person, one vote. We have presidents who we hope are subject to the laws and, you know, we'll see. And the incredible power of the giver to uh, decide how our schools go, what their curriculum is, what issues have priority, what issues are talked about versus not. I mean, we now have news organizations that kind of can cover things if there's a foundation that'll cover 
that line of coverage. If you and I like that line of coverage, we may be fine with it. But it distorts the power of ordinary people to kind of shape their society. And you know, I think it was Thomas Jefferson who had this line about particularly the foundations of people who are dead and made their money a long time ago. It's like a hand reaching out from the grave, tinkering with the mm. lives of the living. So, you know, I think there's sort of two buckets of concerns here, right? One is a democratic concern, that it's just one more way in which people who already have a lot of power through pocketbooks and so on increase their power, where suddenly the school curriculum is set in part by what people donate for. And that is a problem, even if we like the content of a school curriculum. But the second problem, which I suspect people are going to get more head up about, more energized about, is if the content of a school curriculum then does actually end up being misshapen, if the content of our newspapers does end up being misshapen, if the content, frankly, of think tanks ends up being set by who might donate for this kind of thing, what they wouldn't donate for. What are some of the areas there where you look at our public discourse and you say, you know what, there's these whole areas that people just are reluctant to discuss or don't sufficiently discuss because of that structural power imbalance in the background of all of those kinds of institutions that we actually have a reasonable amount of effect and respect for, you know, from the Washington Post to the Brookings Institution. A couple examples. So first of all, we have to understand the full game doesn't just happen on the giving side. So I'm going to give you two examples. But we have to first understand on the taking end, the same people who are giving before they give are often involved, the way they make their fortune is through aggressive profiteering, but also often lobbying for favorable tax treatment, lobbying for carried interest to be taxed much less than ordinary income, lobbying for you know the ability to do a kind of double Dutch Irish sandwich or whatever these kind of fancy tax maneuvers are that allow them to consolidate their wealth. What are they it's doing? Double Dutch Irish sandwich does not sound very appealing. The fact that you don't know about it, it is, is why you're not a billionaire. I mean, one of the reasons you're not a billionaire. There are many reasons I'm right. not a billionaire. Yeah, exactly. I, w- I would hate to just settle on one. If you think about what they're doing there, even before we get to giving, right, they've helped ensure that the government is strapped for cash. So they've underfunded the government in their taking phase of life. Okay, so now we get to their giving phase of life. And the government is a little anemic now because the government didn't get all the taxes it could have gotten if they were actually paying taxes properly. Now, seeing the anemic government, they can step in. And I'll give you two examples. You know, the government runs studies to understand the effect of soft drinks on children. The government runs studies to discover the effects of alcohol on adults. In a recent case, the New York Times reported that I think it was the CDC decided to make a presentation to the alcohol industry saying, hey, we're doing this study. We kind of need some extra money. Go back to why they need extra money. And they got the alcohol industry to fund a study proving that one drink a day is better for your health. So first, you undermine the government to not have enough money, which creates the conditions that then has the government begging the private sector through foundations to fund government research that proves the point that industry wants to hear. Another example is the pension for charter schools. Whether it's the Aspen Institute or TED or any number of these worlds, everybody's got a charter school angle. Everybody wants to create a charter school. Education, it's all about education. We gotta work on teacher performance, this and that. Everybody seems passionate about education. I'll tell you an idea I've never heard in any of those circles. Something that you as a European will find a very ordinary idea. The idea that all public schools in America should be funded equally, not according to the value of your house. 
Yeah. I've actually never met anybody, anybody, who was able to justify to me why the value of your parents' house in a country that we all think is a meritocracy should be the basis for public school funding. One of the things, by the way, that, that is always underplayed in America is just how anomalous that is. In other countries, it's not always the federal state, right? I mean, it might be the city or it might be, you know, in, in, in Germany, the Bundesland, right? The equivalent of a state in the, in the U.S. that funds the school and there's sort of slightly different schools that have slightly different sources of funding. But the end result of it is still that in a big city, it doesn't matter whether you live in the fancy neighborhood or the poor neighborhood, your school has more or less the same basic set of resources. Now, you still end up with some much better schools than others, in part because you still have forms of catchment areas. And obviously, if you live in a very affluent neighborhood in which most of the parents are upper middle class and they invest a lot of time in, in helping the children and so on, you will end up with better students. To some degree, you do end up with more senior teachers having more choice about the schools they end up in. And obviously, eventually, a lot of them do choose to be in the you know slightly nicer schools and slightly nicer parts of town. So you get dynamics which are pernicious as well. But the base level discrepancy in how much teacher earns, what kind of resources schools have, whether they are these beautiful places, the best American public schools are very impressive places to me. But then, you know, a couple of miles from there, you have school buildings that really are falling apart. That level of discrepancy right. is, is, is really quite anomalous. Is it common for school teachers in Germany to have to buy school supplies for students with their own salaries? No, it's not common. I mean, I, I'm sure that school teachers end up doing it anyway every now and again because there's a particular thing that hasn't been approved and so on. But, but it's here, not the situation. Here it is part of the operating procedure for many teachers in many public schools in this country. And you can go, there's maps you know, online where you can look at county by county funding. And you, you know, go to a place like Silicon Valley where you have these very rich towns around Mountain View, Los Altos. And then you just literally, your mouse on the computer moves two millimeters down across a county line, and the funding goes from 20-something thousand dollars per year per student to $5,000. Right, right. I'm agreed. And, and, and it is interesting that this is not something. And that's th this is a point, perfect right, example not... of something that, in theory, anybody with a heart who has some understanding of justice would be unable to defend this. And yet, in all these circles, which include, by the way, probably a few more people on the left than the right in many of these worlds that I wrote about, are unwilling to talk about issues like that and want to do private giving to a charter school or to some kind of achievement program. And so what I take that to add up to is the idea that these efforts to kind of change the world, to give back, are designed to help people in ways that fully wall off and protect the continued ability of the winners to stay on top and milk a system they know to be unjust which is why your book is called Winners Take All. I, I want to ask a question of the subtitle, which is the elite charade of changing the world. I like the way you pronounce charade. It's kind of, it's kind of I like that. Charade. charade. No, I, I actually like it. It gives All it right. a, thank you. It gives it a Euro, a Euro cool quality. Good. A little bit like almond versus almond. Um, <laughs> one of the cases to think about in that respect is Mark Zuckerberg, right? Who I think really does, by the way, give a lot of money to education. And to probably, an LLC. Right. And probably does conceive of himself as changing the world for the better. And at the same time, we see with both the things that Cambridge Analytica was able to do using Facebook data, some of the real uh, potential for negative impact from his business platform, and obviously in the way that Facebook appears at this moment and all of the facts as we're recording this 
about a week before the release aren't out yet, but it looks as though Facebook really did sit on some information about the data breach for a long time without being transparent about it at the least and perhaps actually actively misleading the, the public in certain ways. So how do you think that this kind of case fits into that larger argument? You know, there was this argument that Oscar Wilde made a long time ago that the most dangerous slave owners were the ones who tried to be nice to their slaves, hmm. while, of course, completely upholding, benefiting from, sustaining, and not challenging the system of slavery. And the reason they were the most problematic was that they kept the truth of the institution from being seen. And so that's a very extreme example of something that I think in diluted form is true of a lot of these billionaire saviors today like Zuckerberg, which is the attempt to claim you are changing the world, you are making the world a better place, you're using business to build community, you're emancipating girls in Afghanistan through your platform, you're going to rid the world of all diseases, which is one of his ambitions. It's not that any of those things are problematic. It's that they become a way of obscuring the fact that you are also and perhaps more consequentially, ruthlessly consolidating wealth and power. And let's give a couple examples of how Facebook is doing that to make it vivid to your listeners. If you know anybody who is working in media, you know, not so much fancy new media like you've got over here, newspapers, magazines, these institutions that actually cover elections, cover the world, cover wars, tell us what's happening, sit in boring state legislatures and make sure no one's doing hanky-panky. If you ask any of them privately, they can't say this publicly because of what I'm about to say, but you ask any of them privately, what is most destroying your opportunity to continue to bear witness to democracy? They will tell you Facebook. They will tell you of meetings in their headquarters in Silicon Valley at which they're essentially spoken to as supplicants to a mafia boss. You either publish on our platform where we control the ads or, you know, hope you still have a newspaper. And... Facebook has completely eviscerated, uh, without any concern for the public good, the idea of local news, and frankly, the idea of national news, except for a handful of people who are still somehow able to manage to do it. Facebook has been completely unable and unwilling to police its platform from these kind of foreign intrusions in a way and makes it seem impossible or, or, or it's somehow special. Every other media platform that could be influenced in that way is fully regulated by the United States government. And by the way, manages to do a totally fine job despite that regulation. So this glow of moral superiority and world changing and human emancipation and ridding the world of diseases through your for-profit LLC manages to successfully distract people from the fact that you're just an old-fashioned, somewhat ruthless business person consolidating power and doing what's good for you. And while we see that clearly, when it's a chemical magnate or a mining operator or someone who manufactures paper and cuts down trees, we kind of see it. And so in some ways, we're capable of defending against it because we see it. What's so dangerous about the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world is that we don't see them clearly. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. 
That's shopify.com slash system. So what do we do about all of this? The best solution, of course, would just be to redistribute power and money more equally in our society. And that's something that we should be fighting for. But it's also quite obvious that that's not going to happen tomorrow. One solution would be to, you know, for example, make it much more difficult to have tax deductions for charitable donations and so on. But I guess one of my fears would be that as long as the distribution of power in our society continues to be really unequal, that actually, you know, closes down the limited good that some of those kinds of donations might do without actually rebalancing the power in our society. So what realistic path is there to address what, you know, I certainly agree with you, is a very real problem. There's a famously a 12-step program to help people with, you know, addiction to substances. I have a simple two-step program to help us with our addiction to billionaire saviors. I think step number one is to redefine change, and step number two is to redistribute power. So step number one, and the reason I wrote this book, you know, this is not a book that's a manual of solutions, and everybody wants a manual of solutions these days, and there are plenty of other doors they can knock on, but I wrote Winners Take All because I wanted to actually help us remember that we got the somewhat decent, humane, compassionate, livable world that many of us are lucky enough to live in, not because billionaires threw us a few bucks, not because big companies had small CSR programs, but because people built movements, assembled political coalitions, and fought to change laws, made it illegal to employ children, gave the workday certain reasonable limitations, made it less probable that people were going to die in tenement fires, helped people in their old age not live and die in poverty, created some kind of minimum health standard for people to live in in this society, gave you know women and black people the vote and created the mechanisms to enforce those things. None of those things, which I think we would all acknowledge played a pretty essential role in achieving some measure of decency, none of those were achieved through private generosity from on high. They were achieved from below. So we need to redefine change simply to be what we always knew it to be until we got kind of hijacked since 1979 in the neoliberal era. We know what changes. We just need to remember it. And change is not something that you do with permission slips from the powerful. Infamously literal now, according to, I think, the Merriam-Webster dictionary, also can mean figuratively. And what you're saying is we need to go back to only defining literally as literally. Um, when we're talking about change, we don't want this bizarre sort of metaphor that it's become. We actually want to go back to talking about the things that matter. I'm going to tell you something that may you know, make you slightly vomit in your mouth, which is that yesterday I was on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. My first and probably only time there because I actually called for a revolution um, live on CNBC from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, which is a quite interesting uh, experience. And as I walked in, I like took my seat and I was just looking up at this gilded hall where these traders were kind of hushedly doing whatever it is that they do. And there was this slogan, NYSE, let's change the world. <laughs> very good. One of the people who works at my publisher, just I, I sent her the photo and she wrote back, like, I guess, you know, every, every book ends up having like one photo that just says everything the book's trying to say. And that was it. And so that is pseudo change. The New York Stock Exchange is not how you change the world. And so step one in my two-step program is redefine change. Step two is the more complicated one, and you're right, we can't do it tomorrow. But we can begin tomorrow creating the conditions to do it. There is no meaningful change in this era with this level of inequality, this level of power concentration, without a redistribution of power. A friend of mine summarized my book better than I was able to. He said, you know, elite revolutionaries are a major conservative force these days. And the idea that you can change the world without changing the social order 
is one of the great fantasies of our time. So redistribute power. If the change you are pursuing is not changing the social order and redistributing power, it is not real change. And therefore, all of those who are sincere, whether it's young people deciding what to do when they're 23, or whether it is people with a lot of money to give, whether you have your time or, or your money to kind of contribute to making a better society, ask yourself, are you giving in ways that, frankly, will redistribute power, that will upset, perhaps, your own privilege, that will expose you to the possibility of sacrifice? I, actually, that's a great question, right? Because one way of talking about this is we as the people need to organize and change those laws, perhaps pass some regulations, redistribute money and all of those things. I'm absolutely in agreement with that. I mean, another way of thinking about it is if you're listening to this and you do actually have real resources, what can you do better, right? And I guess the question there is to what degree is this actually a catch-22, right? I mean, to what degree is any way of giving money by its very nature an exertion of influence? Or to what degree are there ways that you can give money that you think, no, you really actually would be making change? As always, you're breaking it down very well. So we need to change going forward the conditions under which people make money. And if we do that successfully, their opportunity of people in the future to profiteer as they do while paying people so little and avoiding taxes will be reduced. But you are absolutely right that a lot of this is a fait accompli. There's just an enormous amount of money that has been made particularly the Silicon Valley fortunes, which are starting to be passed down and estate planned. There's just an enormous, enormous amount of money that kind of the first point is not going to apply to. And so I get this question a lot. And frankly, I have to say, I get this question from a lot of earnest rich people who agree with as much of what I'm saying as rich people could agree with and who say, but what do I do? I don't want to sit on the money. Certainly sitting on the money and going golfing doesn't seem like the right answer. And I don't think that. So how can you give if you recognize these issues? What I say to people is that there are a couple of principles that we all understand when giving to our children that we seem to forget when giving to our society. And I think we need to be inspired by how we give to our children. Those principles are, I think anybody sensible who gives to their children understands that you do not want to give in ways that crowd out their capacity to solve their own problems over the long term. In fact, you want to build their capacity, even if it's $20 billion you're giving them and you can be assured they won't have financial needs. You don't want to enfeeble their capacities of kind of self-government. Point number two, anybody who gives to their children, any decent person who gives to their children, is willing to give usually in ways that involve sacrifice for them. I am willing to go to fewer restaurants and nice vacations to have my child have the right education or right experiences. I am willing to live in a smaller house so that my child can go to a college that allows her to fulfill her dreams. Somehow when we give to the society, when rich people give to the society, those two principles that they understand in domestic life fail them. And instead of giving in ways that allow the public to solve its own problems more effectively over time, they often give in ways that displace the public's mm. ability to solve its own problems. And there's a group of people at Stanford who talk about this as you know, contributory philanthropy versus disruptive philanthropy. Mm. Okay, So if you're giving to a group of local activists to train them, to give them better skills, to help them network with each other and share best practices and go back to their communities and 
more actively fight for it if you're giving them income to so they don't have to work other jobs while they fight in those communities. That is very different from running some massive program where you're dictating to 30 states what their health policy should be as a private actor. So I want to make a meaningful distinction there between giving that disrupts and displaces the ordinary function of democracy versus giving that enhances it. By the way, being anonymous there, not putting your name on it is another way to Hmm, reduce the influence. Second, on this question of opening yourself to the possibility of sacrifice, as we understand with our children, fighting for things like charter schools is self-protective helping. Fighting for things like equal public schools would be more in line with how we help our children. Helping out of the genuine compassion that say, this may hurt my home value. This may make Greenwich less of a fancy place to live, but I am willing to fight for this because it's right. And I know that's a lot to ask Mm. people, but if you are a wealthy person in Greenwich with a couple billion dollars or a couple million dollars to give, an example of getting on the right side of what I'm talking about would be to donate to an initiative that is trying to make public school funding equal across this country and that if they succeed, it might hurt you. You know, I'm not sure that I buy that last point entirely, which is to say that that's certainly true of a lot of affluent people who donate, right? I mean, people who are not in the billionaire category, not anywhere close to it, but who, you know, generally affluent people living in very nice suburbs who end up donating to the charter school that the child goes to, right? Which is, you know, in certain ways admirable, but certainly has the effect of sort of being public-minded and public-spirited, and they certainly tell themselves that it's because they care about the community and so on, but it also has a relatively direct effect on, you know, sustaining the kinds of advantages that the children need to get into the best schools and to sustain their sort of class advantage over time, right? You know, it's not clear to me when billionaires give, you know, they probably don't send their school either to the charter school that they're founding or to the public school, right? So it's not clear to me that it is in their self-interest in the kind of direct way you're talking about. And it reveals a deeper set of problems, which may be more difficult to solve, which is that by the time that you're running in that circle, that you've made that money or inherited it, that just comes with a certain conception of a world, a certain kinds of set of people who you're regularly exposed to and others who you're not regularly exposed to, perhaps a bias towards thinking that the solution always has to be business or at least non-governmental institutions rather than the state. And that's in some ways more difficult to combat and check because with the best will, you're not going to act against what your view of a world and what your principles are. And if your view of a world and your principles are either just wrong or at least very unrepresentative of that of most people in society, this is going to have in a certain kind of way an anti-majoritarian effect, a real infringement on the ability of all of us collectively to govern ourselves that stays there even if you're really careful about making sure that you donate in a way that's empowering rather than imposing. I mean, yes and no. I'm not just talking about billionaires donating to their own charter school. I'm talking about the education reform movement in this country is one of the favored causes of super rich people. But in general, because of the nature of the causes, going after underperforming teachers, which is a real issue, trying to create more charter schools, which may be a good thing in certain places. But because of what is unwilling to be touched, this question of equalizing public school funding, it ends up being self-protective help. And my only point was, for the rich people who ask me, as they often do, okay, how can I give better? 
given ways that enhance the democracy's ability to make you unnecessary over time. Hmm. And number two, given ways that if your giving succeeds, it may make your life a little harder, it may make your fortune a little smaller, it may make your tax bill higher, it may make your home value in Greenwich less because your schools are now suddenly not any better than those in Bridgeport. Expose yourself to the possibility of sacrifice if you truly believe in change for the common good. We have been sold this phony notion that you can change the world for free. You can't. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying this podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter, make up a huge countdown clock, place it in Times Square or a city of your choosing and have it count down to the release of the next episode of The Good Fight. In this case, the second half of my conversation with Anand. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.